at the school would fluctuate. Our, we have a Christian school, and our, our enrollment would fluctuate. It would go up, it would go down, it would go up, it would go down. And, um, and so I always, whenever the school got full, I always, and, and people said, we need to build on, we need to build on. I would always say, give it a year, give it two. It'll, the economy will turn a bit, and, and the enrollment will go down. And uh, I... I uh, I remember talking to the head of school, I think it was Jane Miner, and I said, Jane, I said, we, we have got to work on uh, making this school the best that it could be. I dream of a day that we are standing in front of each other, just shaking our heads going, the school is full and there's a waiting list to get into this thing. I dream of that day. I long for that day. <laughs> we're there. Uh, we're there. And uh, the, space, the space needs for... Um, for our ministry have grown to the point where uh, it, it would be, I think, a dereliction of my duty to not suggest or at least bring to you, the congregation, the need that we have to, to expand. Now, uh, in my, my attempt over these next few weeks is just to show you two things. What God has said about money and our resources that we are his stewards of and secondly, to present the need for what we're going to attempt to do and, and invite you into that if the Lord moves you to, to, to uh, give to that need, uh, that's fine. But what, here's what I don't want to do. <clears throat> and I want to be very clear about this at the beginning of this because I don't, whatever I do, whatever we do as a church, the, the last thing that I want to do is to cause division over this. That's not my intent at all. And so while we are going to take, I'm just going to be honest with you and, and upfront with you, while we are going to take steps to make it easy for you to commit yourself to giving towards this building effort, we're going to make it easy. Here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to manipulate. We're not going to arm twist. We're not going to coerce. And if, and if, if, if anything that I say or do or anything that the leadership says or does feels like manipulation, coercion, or we're browbeating folks into doing something, uh, that is, I'm stating at the very beginning, that is not my intent, and I, I am trying to steer as far away from that as possible. Do you understand what I'm saying? My goal is to present to you what God has said in his word clearly, not, not my opinion, whatever, but what God has clearly said in his word about the resources that he's given us to steward to present to you the need that we have, uh, a need that we have in this ministry and to invite you to give if the Lord should motivate you to do so. That's my goal. I don't want to arm twist. I don't want to manipulate. I don't want to browbeat. I don't want to intimidate. I don't want none of that. Okay. First thing that we need to cover before we even get into this is, is just a reality. The reality is, is that a lot of things that we do as a church today is cultural and situational. Can we just admit that? A lot of the things that we do in the church is cultural and situational. What, what I mean by that is we have clear commands from God. And, and at, the, at the top level, those clear commands from God are to love God with everything that we've got, love others and to make disciples of Jesus Christ. How that's carried out within a particular area of the world, a particular 
demographic group, a particular culture, how that's done varies from church to church. And if you know anything about the history of missions, one of the biggest mistakes that missionaries have made, American missionaries have made, is to take what is normal and routine in the American church and to try to go overseas to other churches and to plant American-style churches in other cultures. That, that's not good. Because in their minds, they had it in their minds that the American form of church is the right form of church. The way we do things here is the right way. So <clears throat> let's just, let's just, let me just paint you a few examples of what I'm talking about. When, when a couple comes to me and they want to get married, uh, typically, if they're a young couple, they'll say something like this. We, we really, we're coming to you, pastor, because we want to have a Christian wedding. And I say, great, let's have a Christian wedding. Let's get some friends together and I'll, uh, we'll just wear our street clothes and, and we'll come up and, and we'll, ha- we'll go out to your house or wherever you want to go. That's not, not imperative where we go. And I'll just say, uh, uh, you know, you guys come forward and I'll say to your friends, this man now belongs to this woman. Everybody cool with that? They say amen. Okay. Okay. This woman now belongs to this man. Everybody cool with that? Say amen. Okay, cool. Everybody got it? They're married. Okay. Bye. That would be a Christian wedding, right? Because that's the bare minimum that's required uh, for, for that to happen. All the stuff that we do, you take this man to be your lawfully wedded wife, you know, have the, the gowns that we wear, the tuxedos, the, <clears throat> the walking the aisle, the, the music that's played well, that's all cultural, right? And it varies from culture to culture how that's done. It doesn't mean that in a foreign country like Peru, that a, a marriage is less Christian because they do things differently. It's cultural. You're sitting in chairs. We used to sit in pews. That's cultural, right? Uh, what I wear up here to preach, the fact that I preach from a, a, a thingy that has a slanted slope and a microphone sticking out of it, and that's cultural, right? A lot of the things that we do are cultural, and they're also situational. We have to think about the context in which we're ministering. And so if we were a church in the inner city and the biggest problems facing us as a, facing our community were, I don't know, addiction and, and, and recidivism and crime and all this kind of stuff, we may gear our ministries differently to go out and reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ in those contexts, but that's not where we live. We live in, in Delaware, you know, in Delaware, Ohio. And so we gear uh, our ministries around what is the ways that we can spread the gospel, the ways that we can disciple people uh, in Delaware, Ohio. There's a lot of Christian liberty out there, and we need to just recognize that. So, today we're going to talk about building something and why we would consider building something. And so the big question that we're going to wrestle with today is this. If I can get my PowerPoint to work, what should motivate God's people to build something today? What should motivate God's people to build something today? Now, all I'm going to do is I'm going to go into the Bible and I'm going to pull out three examples of when God's people decided to build something. And I'm going to make some observations about those. And and I think these observations will be helpful about what motivated God's people at the time Israel to build something. And then we'll make some application and then um, and then we'll go from there. All right, let me, let's just turn, first of all, to Exodus 25. Uh, and we'll talk about Moses and the tabernacle. Moses, uh, Exodus 25, 1 through 9, let me read it. The Lord said to Moses, this is Exodus 25, 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they 
take for me a contribution. Every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple, scarlet yarns, and fine twisted linens, goat, goat's hair. I can't believe that that's what God asked for. Being a pig farmer, I hate goats. But apparently that was a valuable thing back then. Goat's hair, tanned rams, skins, goat skins, ugh, there it is again, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil and for, uh, for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod, for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. Stop right there. Let's make a, a few observations from this. Now, in case you don't know, or, or maybe you're newish, newish to the Bible, this is, the context of this is that God's people, Israel, have just come, they've come out of Egypt by God's mighty hand, by his outstretched arm. He sent the plagues. He allowed Pharaoh to let his people go. He, they crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, and then God allowed the waters of the Red Sea to come back together, and he drowned, supernaturally killed the army, the pursuing army of Pharaoh. And now they're out in the wilderness and God is, is speaking to his man, Moses, and giving him uh, commands. And so what, the, what's, gonna, what's gonna happen after this is that God is gonna lay out a design for this thing called the tabernacle. And it's a tent-like structure, it's portable. And um, it's where God's presence is going to take up residence. He's gonna take up residence as a pillar of 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 fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day, pillar of smoke by day. And, and he's gonna have his people, Israel, encamp around that thing. And that's where they're gonna come to worship and to make sacrifices for their sins and, and all these things. This is gonna be the central focus of the people. But as they are wandering around in the wilderness and as they go about there, they, they'll be able to disassemble this thing and carry it from place to place to place, the tabernacle. And if you get really interested in studying the tabernacle and the following passages, here's one thing I would invite you to look for as you read about the tabernacle and its design. I'm not gonna do it this morning, but you can read about it. Look for vestiges of the Garden of Eden, especially in the holy place and then the holy of holies. Look at what, how God told the people to embroider and what designs he wanted embroidered on the inside of that cloth. I just find it interesting that in, that, uh, in, in not just that, but in the lampstands and, and things like that, there are vestiges of God's original state where Adam and Eve were in perfection in the garden. Anyway, uh, but let's make some observations about, th about this. First of all, God commanded the people of Israel to build a tabernacle. Now, I'm just gonna cut to the chase right now because I don't want you to think about this the whole sermon. God is not commanding us to build a building. I, I just wanna say that the most unequivocal way I can. There, I can't take you any scripture. I can't take you to any passage in the New Testament or Old Testament that says, Delaware Bible Church, I command thee, build bigger. Doesn't say it. So, so I'm just giving you one example of the way that God motivates his people uh, to build. And in this case, Exodus 25, God made a command. He wanted them to build the tabernacle. Now, <clears throat> I also want you to notice that when God commands, he supplies. When God commands, he supplies. 
Does anybody remember what happened as the Israelites were leaving Egypt? It's kind of a, it's just a couple of verses that mentions this, but as Israel, as the people of Israel are leaving Egypt after the plagues are over, after Pharaoh has said, get out of here, leave, go. They, they got up and they went in haste and what happened? <clears throat> Exodus 12, you can read this on your own, but I'm gonna read it for you. Exodus 12, <clears throat> 33 to 36, it's three verses. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall, be, we shall all be dead. This is after they experienced the plagues and everything. They were in dread and fear of these people. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses had told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have whatever they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. On the way out of town, as, as Pharaoh had given the order, get out of here, and as the people said, get out, you know what, we don't want you around here anymore, or we're all gonna die, get out of here. As they were leaving, the, the Israelites said, hey, if you have any gold or silver or any clothing that I could use, I'll take that. And they said, go, here, take it, get, get out of here. And they plundered the Egyptians. And so I find it interesting that God had given the command of the people of Israel to build the tabernacle, but he also, these were slave people. These were people under slavery in, in Egypt. And right before, as they were exiting, they plundered the Egyptians. So they had the resources. Now, this third observation that I'm gonna make is shocking to me. Frankly, it's shocking to me. I love it. I just wanna say, I love, love, love this third observation, but it's shocking to me nonetheless. And that is this. The necessary resources came through the generous contributions of his people. The necessary resources to build this tabernacle came through the generous contributions of his people. Wait a minute, Pastor Scott, you just said that God allowed the people of Israel to plunder Egypt, take their gold, take their silver, take their clothing. God gave, them the, God gave the Israelites favor in the Egyptians' eyes. You would think that God would say, build me a tabernacle, and oh, by the way, all that stuff that I allowed you to pick up in Egypt, cough it up. Bring it forward, cough it up, all the stuff, all the items. We're gonna send people around to check if you did not give all the items that, that, uh, that uh, were accumulated. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that at all. From every man, whose heart moves him, you shall receive a contribution from me. I continue to marvel. I, I, listen, I don't, know, I don't know how you're gonna receive this. I receive this as glory to God. I, I continue to marvel that we are emerging. I don't think we're quite there yet. We're emerging from a pandemic. And I thought, seriously in my head that at the beginning of this thing, as we were going to, as, as churches were closing, as we had to close for a little bit of time, as we were trying to figure things out, that as, as people were maybe losing their jobs or couldn't work or, you know, the remote work thing didn't work for them, whatever, I thought that this may be a winnowing time for the church. We're gonna have to shrink down in size. We're gonna have to whatever. And, and maybe we even have to shrink in staff. We'll have to get some different jobs because 
whatever. Giving went up during the pandemic. Giving was strong at this church during the pandemic. I continue to be amazed at how God supplies for the need of this church. And, and how often do I get up here and <laughs> I'm not trying to toot my own horn, I'm, but how often do we as a church pound the pulpit about money? Like never? I, I shy away. I shouldn't because God, Jesus talked about it a lot, but, but I tend to, to, it tends to be an ouchy subject. And, and, and because we're, uh, maybe in my mind, uh, you know, we, we're such good and generous givers here that, we, that I don't make it a topic that I rail on at all. And, and so what do we see in this passage? Even though God had given them generously to steward gold and silver and clothing, what does he ask for? If anybody wants to give, give towards the uh, tabernacle. Amazing. Example number two, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Here's another example where God's people built something. 1 Chronicles 29, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I am going to start and read a little bit. So 1 Chronicles 29, beginning in verse 1. This is the example of David and Solomon and the temple. For a little bit of context here, the tabernacle was a portable tent structure that went from place to place with the people of Israel. When they eventually got enough command of the promised land and established as its uh, capital, Jerusalem, and they went through King Saul and then they went through King David, it, it was, it was um, I think, David who said to the Lord, why should I have a, a a palace where I live, and you're still taking up dwelling among us in the, in the tabernacle. And so David was moved to build him a house. God sent word and said that he didn't want David to build him a house. He had too much blood on his hands and, and things of that nature. And so uh, the job fell to Solomon. But here in 1 Chronicles 29, we see David gets the process started. Uh, and David, the king, said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great, for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and the wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, and antimony, uh, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Moreover, in addition to all that, I have provided for the holy house I have a treasure of my own gold and silver, and because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold, the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house and for all the work to be done by craftsmen. Gold for the things of gold, silver for the things of silver. Uh, who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? Then the leaders of the fathers of the house, leaders of the fathers' houses made their free will offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of the thousands and the hundreds and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God five thousand talents and ten thousand derricks of gold, uh, ten thousand talents of silver, eighteen thousand talents of bronze, and a hundred thousand talents of iron. And whomever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in care of. Jehiel, the Gershonite. And the people rejoiced because they had given willingly, for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord 
David the king also rejoiced greatly. I'm gonna stop right there. I think you, I hope that you're seeing a pattern emerge, but let me just make a few other observations. In preparing to build the temple, the leadership led by example in giving first. David gave first, and then the fathers of the houses gave first. So the leadership gave first. Uh, and what else we see? The necessary resources for this building came through the free will offering of his people. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be as, as honest as I can. I always try to be. But uh, there's controversy in the Christian world whether David was supposed to build this temple or if it was David's idea and later on God blessed it. Uh, but there's, there's no clear command that I can point to in Scripture where, where God said to David, build me a house, or God said to Solomon, build me a house. Instead, it seems like it was David's idea to transfer the tabernacle, which was a portable installation, into a permanent installation in Jerusalem. And we see clearly in places like 1 Chronicles 17 that uh, David was told by God, thus saith the Lord, it is not you who are to build me a house to dwell in it. So God did not want David to build him a house. Um, but we also see in places like 2 Chronicles 7 that when the temple was finished, the Lord put his glory in it. Let me read 1 Chronicles 7, 1 and 2. As soon as, the, as, soon, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, this is the dedication ceremony, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. So again, here we, we've gone from a tabernacle, which was a commanded structure, uh, to uh, the temple, which wasn't commanded. David was motivated to build it. God said no. And so Solomon built it and the Lord filled it with his glory. But, but, but the observation that I really wanted to point you to was this, is that the necessary resources to build even that, more elaborate than the tabernacle, bigger than the tabernacle, was a free will offering. It seems that David... Solomon did not compel anyone to do these things, simply presented the need to the people and said, give if you'd like to give, and people gave. Third example. Take your Bible and turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. This is a completely different situation in Israel's history because Israel has been in exile. They, they, have, they were... Um, not walking in the ways of God. God sent prophets to warn them that he was going to punish them for not walking in his ways, not keeping his statutes. And he did put him in exile for a long time under the, first the Babylonians, then the Persian Empire. And now there's this man named Nehemiah who's the cupbearer to, he's a Jew, but he's a cupbearer to the Persian king. And Nehemiah hears a report, just to give you context, Nehemiah hears a report in chapter one that from his homeland, from Jerusalem, that things are not going well there, that the city is in ruins, it's in rubble, and that the people there are not, that do exist there are not doing well. And it broke his heart. It broke his heart. And so, Nehemiah, out of a motivation, uh, I'm, you know, what we can read from the text, it seems that he's motivated from his relationship with God and for the love of his people, 
we read this, Nehemiah chapter two, verses one through eight. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when nine was before him, sorry, when wine was before him, my eyes are getting old. When wine was before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So apparently Nehemiah is now sad in his presence. He had never done that before. And the king said to me, why is your face sad seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been burned, sorry, been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. So I I, I can see, I'm I'm picturing Nehemiah launching just an urgent prayer. God, I'm about to ask. Bless my asking. I'm about, I'm, I'm about to put, put the request out there. So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves that I might rebuild it, I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen was sitting beside him. I love that parenthetical phrase. I'm not gonna talk about that parenthetical phrase, but I geek out every time I read it because I go and try to figure out who the queen is at that time. And I just wonder if it was Esther. How long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortresses of the temple and for the walls of the city and for the houses that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Stop right there. Love it, love it, love it, love it. What was motivating Nehemiah? Nehemiah, saddened by the state of Jerusalem, asked permission to go begin rebuilding. And what else do we see is that God supplied not just permission, but also resources through a pagan ruler. Pagan meaning non-Christian, non-God-fearing, a pagan ruler. He gave him the letters, which I'm kind of like saying, these are like building permits, you know, here you go. Here's the building permits. Tell, tell all the governors in my area, I'm giving you permission to build these things, so let, let, let them pass through. And he gave them resources. He gave them permission to harvest timber from some forests and uh, to, to use those as building materials. So what do we see here? We see a lot of things, right? God's, God's people can be motivated by a command from God, a direct command from God, which we do not have, and I'm gonna make that clear over and over again. We do not have a clear command from God. God, God's people can also be motivated by a desire to please him and a desire also to love people. So the, the, the big question this morning was this, what should motivate God's people to build something today? And here's the answer. God's people have built things by God's direct command and supply. God's people have also built things using wisdom meaning 
they understand what God's word says, and out of a heart of wanting to please God and love people, they have decided that at this particular time, in this particular place, this is the thing we need to build. God can supply for what his people build in various ways, but never through coercion, never by arm twisting, never by manipulation, never. In fact, don't you find it interesting that the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ himself, who offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross for our sin, even then, even after the God of the universe came down and incarnated himself into human flesh, lived a perfect life, was tortured and brutally murdered, shamefully in a kangaroo, you know, passed through a kangaroo court. There was no justice in what happened to him. And he offered himself willingly. And still, when he makes the offer of salvation to us as human beings, he doesn't say, do it or I'll, you know, I'll hurt you. I'll, I'll, I'm going to twist your arm. And t-. He says, here I am, come. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. I love the way God operates. Now, this is a weird sermon because it's, you know, you're thinking, oh boy, we got 15 minutes, we're gonna get out of here early. No, well, put that away for a minute. Now I'm gonna talk about some things. I wanna talk about practical realities at Delaware Bible Church. And then uh, Bart Hughes is gonna come here in a minute and, um, and, and share with you some, some facts. Practical realities at Delaware Bible Church. Our community is growing. Our community is growing Around 1991, when I was graduating high school, the population of Delaware County was about 67,000 people according to the data that I looked at. 67,000 people in 1991. Today, Delaware County in 2021, again according to the data that's available, runs about 217,000 people in the county. In the nine years that I've been serving at Delaware Bible Church, and I just passed nine years, Delaware County has steadily increased at the clip of 4,000 a year, pretty much reliably. Sometimes a bit over 4,000 a year, sometimes a bit under 4,000 a year, but about 4,000 people a year over the last nine years has been added to the population. Now listen, I'm a, I'm a practical guy. I like to think that I have a level head. It would be more difficult to consider growing our ministry if we lived in a region or an area that was experiencing stagnant or even negative population growth, but Delaware County is growing. Secondly, interest in our school ministry is high. Interest in our school ministry is high. We did some demographic studies years ago when we were carrying out our church health assessment, and we discovered that Christian school interest in in central Ohio is one of the highest interests in Christian education, Christian school education uh, in in the country. Uh, And here's some evidence of that fact. In in the sports programs that we have here at our school, we actually are in a league that is all Christian schools. I don't know if you know that or not, but we we play in a league called the MoCal, the Mid-Ohio Christian Athletic League. And, And we have lots of schools that we play and not only that, but uh, not, not only is that the case, but we also are, are located in an area where we can play other Christian schools that aren't in our conference. <laughs> so there's MoCal schools, and then there's, <clears throat> there's schools like Worthington Christian that aren't in our conference, but we can play them. We play them too. In fact, we, we beat them at volleyball in three sets this year. <laughs> it was amazing. 
So anyway, I say that to say interest in our school ministry is high. It would be a challenge, brothers and sisters, to consider adding on to our building, uh, some of which, a lot of which is to support our school ministry, if we lived in an area where Christian school, schools were lower, interest in Christian schools were low. But it's not. It's high here. And in fact, I can tell you, I have uh, information to tell you that um, there are at least two Christian schools in our area, Grove City and Genoa, who are expanding their facilities as well. And they're ahead of us. They're, I mean, I'm, we're not competing. We're, we're brothers and sisters of Christ. But they're expanding theirs because they recognize that, that interest in Christian school education is, on the, is high around here. Now, I want to say this, and I want everybody to listen up. Uh, Christian education or education of children by parents is an area of Christian liberty. Christians can homeschool. Christians can access public school, private school, or private Christian schools. That's an area of Christian liberty. In other words, I'm not going to ever stand behind this pulpit and say, this is right and this is wrong in terms of education. It's a, it's a, it's a, area of Christian liberty. And we have representatives from each of those groups in our church, public school, home school, private school, private Christian school. All of those exist in our church. Each option has its positives and negatives, and we are to respect others' opinions and not to, to allow these things to become divisive. In other words, I don't want to hear somebody in our church because it's not biblical, not because I don't love you, because it's unbiblical, say the only option to properly educate a child for a Christian is X. That's not true. Romans 14, read it. Our youth group is growing. Our youth group is growing. Uh, Pastor Aaron has been serving our students and families diligently, and our youth group continues to expand. Aaron has tried to hold youth groups, I, every year I love this. Aaron make, has made, over the years, he's made various plans to like meet with a teacher in our school and kind of coordinate and, and, and make one of our classrooms into the youth room, kind of do some decorating and painting and all this kind of stuff. And then he instantly outgrows that room. Uh, we've adapted the area just outside the library in the past. We've tried using a school classroom. Currently, they meet in the commons. Since Pastor Aaron has been here, he's been, he's patiently expressed to me over and over the need for a youth space, and we are going to, uh, with God's help, include that in this project. Some other realities. Tolerance of Christian values within public school is waning. Do I need to make that case? Do I need to make the case that, that, that Christian, that the tolerance of Christian values, I'm not talking about, I'm not, I'm not talking about somebody saying to a kid, you know, if, if you believe what you believe, it's okay. No, I'm saying, that, I'm saying that there are examples that I can cite where people are saying, to our children, you believe that, that's not right, that's wrong. What you believe in your church, what your parents are teaching you is wrong. Let me tell you what's right. Uh, we're living in a time when there's an all-out attack on what truth even is. It would be difficult for me to believe as a youth that we would have heated disagreements today about what it means to be a man or a woman, what marriage is, and what the proper place for God is. God's beautiful, wonderful gift of human sexuality. Where, where's the right place for that? And yet here we are. Our culture is having those debates and trying to indoctrinate our children in these things all the time. We do live in that time. We do live in that place. And so we're living in a time and place uh, where the, there is moral insistence that the way of the world is right and the way of God is wrong. 
And those who hold to the way of God need to be re-educated. We, we truly are living in a land of confusion. I'm a realist. I understand that Delaware Christian School is not perfect. There's no such thing as a perfect, perfect Christian school when sinners are involved, and we have a lot of them at our school. I'm one of them. However, the, for those who choose not to homeschool and for those that choose not to public school, Delaware Christian School is a place where parents can send their children and where God is acknowledged and discussed openly and where we try to love one another according to his word. And when we mess up, and we do, we try to correct ourselves according to God's word. It's not perfect. I'm gonna say this again. God does not command us to build a building. This is a wisdom issue. I'm gonna say this over and over throughout the campaign. The project that we hope to complete is not something that we can turn, into chapter and turn to chapter and verse in the Bible and discover that God has commanded us to erect a building I'm not gonna to attempt to manipulate you with language like God told me or God revealed to me in a dream that we should do this thing. I'm not doing that because it's not true. What I do know is that God has given us a mission on the earth. To we boil it down to this, to love God, to love others, and to make disciples. And a building is a tool that can be used to carry out that mission the mission that God has given us. I'm aware, uh, it, there's been twice in my life, this is a, a funny story, I, th there's been twice in my life where I've had people approach me, not from this church, but from, from the wider church. People approach me and say, Pastor, I don't even know what you're doing with a building. The real church needs to meet in homes. That's the way they did it in the book of Acts. That's the way we need to do it today. And uh, they've written books on why the church is wrong and institutional church is wrong and we need to get away from the institutional church and get back to home church and whatever. And, and, and I usually love to engage with conversation because I have all kinds of questions to ask and I'm very curious about these things. And, and in, in the two cases where I've had people approach me, this is the way that conversation went. They, I, said, uh, I said, okay, well, tell me, about your, tell me about the life of your church. Well, you know, what we do is we, we worship at homes on Sunday, but on Saturday we have this building and we gather in this building for fellowship <laughs> because we won't all fit in the homes. So we gather in this building for fellowship and, and, and we have fellowship on Saturday, but we worship on Sunday. You see, you see the, the disconnect there? A building is a tool. If a church, churches meet in homes and in some cultures, in some settings, that's probably all that can happen if, if, if the Christianity is illegal. But, um, but a building is just a tool. It's a tool that we use to carry out the mission of God. Our building is well used, and there's an opportunity to serve more people with a larger building. Uh, just, just some, I'm running out of time. Our building is, our enrollment at our school is about 350 students. I don't know if you know that, pre-K through 12. And it's been pretty stable over the last years. The families that we serve and the staff that we employ come to us from about 40 different churches in this area. But we unabashedly, unapologetically preach and teach. In our Bible classes, we teach the doctrine of this church. Unapologetically. We've had folks come to us from other churches, the Roman Catholic Church, from other religious backgrounds and say, well, I want you to tailor my child's education to what, what our theological convictions are, and we say, this is not your school. 
Not meaning that we own it and you don't, ha, 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 ha. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying this may not be the school for you because we're gonna teach, we are convicted that we are gonna teach the Bible the way we understand it. I don't know if you know this, but this room that you're sitting in is a classroom now. Uh, choir meets in here. Uh, Albany Witt's choir class meets in here. Strings meets in here. I think there's three classes a day commonly that meet in here. Out in the commons, you'll notice that there's a divider out there, and behind that divider is kind of a carpet and a whole bunch of decorations and weird stuff. That's Albany Witt's elementary music classroom. Uh, we've had to take space in the back of the library, the school library, and convert that space into offices for staff who have no other place to work. We have a temporary, temporary modular classroom building outside the back of the building. That's where high school Bible and high school uh, history classes meet. We have almost no storage in this building, which gets very interesting when we, when we are forced to store something. We have to get very creative about that while at the same time keeping the fire marshal happy. Our school is full and there are families on the waiting list to enroll. Praise the Lord. And we have other space challenges that we must wait to address in the future. We just can't simply address them all now. So, like I said, over the next five Sundays, here's what I will present to you. Two things. What God's word says about stewardship of the resources that he has given us. That's the, that's the main thing we're gonna be talking about over the next few weeks. And the second thing is the plans that the leadership of this church have put together to expand the building so we can have an increased capacity to carry out the mission that God has given us. And all we're going to do is invite you to give if your heart, if, if God moves you to, to do that. And, um, and that's what we're gonna do. So, Here's some possible applications for you. Uh, first of all, um, we, bought a, some, we bought some books that we're gonna use as kind of our guideline through this. It's a book, it's a really good book by Randy Alcorn. It's called The Treasure Principle. And we've got copies out there for each family with your name on it so that we know who got one and who didn't. We would love for you to read through this with us. It's a very short book. As you can tell, it's not thick. A couple of chapters a week. Uh, start this week with reading chapter one and chapter two. And here's my encouragement to you. I love to write in my books, to mark them up. Maybe that's, if you're OCD, that's too much for you. You can't handle it. But I love to write in my books. And I, I even, I've even got an extra piece of paper in my book because I think your version has a journal in the back, like extra blank pages that you can write in, but mine didn't. So I have an extra piece of paper in here that I've taken notes on. But read this book. There's a lot of gold in this book uh, when it comes to what the Bible says about stewardship. So read that. The second thing and third thing that I would encourage you to do is this. Start, start praying and asking God if he would have you contribute to this project or not. And again, uh, we would love it if everybody participates somewhat, but we would love it if some of you would participate uh, wholeheartedly, sacrificially, as the Lord leads you to do. And then finally, uh, ask questions. You probably have a thousand of them. Uh, as, as Bart will share in a minute, we've been thinking about this for a long time, like over a year, and um, uh, well over a year, years. And um, uh, we've, got, we've had time to process through everything and ask ourselves questions and think things through and stuff, and, and you haven't. So with that, with that being said, I'm gonna introduce Bart Hughes, who's gonna come up, and, and just he's just gonna share with you for a couple of minutes uh, some more information, and then we'll be dismissed. He's gonna dismiss us. I ran you completely out of time. 
Now you know what I'm after every week. Just give Bart a little grace. It was my fault. <laughs> Good morning. Or is it afternoon yet? I don't know. It seems no, just still morning. Well, as uh, Pastor Scott mentioned, my name is Bart Hughes, and God graciously is allowing me to serve you as an elder and to also serve you as the Delaware Christian School School Board President. So I am blessed to serve you in those two roles. See if I can figure out this clicker thing. So most often, I think you would agree with me that um, we're able to see God's work in our lives. Um, Mostly we see that in the rearview mirror, meaning after something has happened, we can look back and say, oh, now, okay, kind of makes more sense now. I can see what God was doing. But occasionally I think it's possible to have a sense, maybe not see the whole picture, but to have a sense that God is doing something as it's happening, as you're experiencing it. And that's where I find myself today. As Pastor Scott mentioned, for probably more than two years, there have been discussions, there's been prayers, there's been planning, all surrounding the future needs of DBC and DCS. And I think there's a sense by those who have been involved so far that we're at the beginning of something great that God is doing. So I'm excited that we're finally to the point um, where we're beginning to share this information with you because hopefully you will be as excited as we are. So I've been asked to share with you what we're calling the nuts and bolts of the campaign. My task is to begin to answer some of the questions around the big question, which is, how's this going to work? And there are three goals to the campaign. First, there's a ministry aspect, which Pastor Scott's already mentioned, that we want to expand the building to be able to minister to more people through the church and also through the school. Then there's the project, the project itself. What does it involve? Well, the uh, capital campaign would allow us to add 12 additional classrooms which will allow the school to accommodate more students. Also, the courtyard out here would be partially enclosed, and that would allow space for youth ministries, church activities, and also school use. And then lastly, there would be some reconfiguring that would happen out here that would allow us to provide for expanding the nursery, for more storage, and also for some additional office space. The expansion would be, will be constructed on the west side of the 100 building, which is out this way, if you're directionally challenged like I am. Which way is west as we're sitting in here? Uh, and it will result in the removal of that modular classroom that Pastor Scott mentioned that was uh, put in temporarily three years ago. Also, uh, there's a financial goal, because I'm sure you're all wondering, what in the world is this going to cost? So the estimated cost is $4 million for the construction, for the plans that we have right now. And the capital campaign, the giving portion of that, is planned to last for three years. More on that in a minute. And the church and the school have divided up that $4 million goal, and each entity is attempting to uh, raise $2 million. So... 
If you attend DBC and you have children in the school, you'll be asked, I'm sorry, if you attend DBC and you don't have children in the school, you'll be asked to participate in the church side of that campaign. And if you attend DBC and you do have children in the school, you'll be asked to participate on the school side. All the money goes to the same place. It doesn't really matter which side, but just for that goal that each side has of raising $2 million. Uh, as Pastor Scott mentioned, the Bible has a lot to say about um, finances and our money, but there are a few kind of uh, high-level biblical foundations that uh, have been thought about for this campaign. First of all is that God is the owner of all. We don't really own anything. God owns it all, and that we are stewards of God's wealth, and he has entrusted us with that wealth. And lastly, we are blessed to be able to bless others. God um, expects, expects us to be a funnel that he pours his resources into and that it flows through us out to others. Um, today, as Pastor Scott mentioned, if you didn't on the way in, please on your way out, check the tables and pick up a, your copy of this book. Read along with us as we go throughout uh, this five-week teaching campaign. So some more of the nuts and bolts, though. Um, you will receive a commitment card and instructions in the mail. They will be mailed out November 5th. Oops, sorry. You will be asked to complete that commitment card, but hear that that card is not a legal document. It's simply a form to help with record keeping and to make projections. Only those people that are working in the business office will, who record your gift, who make record of your commitment card, will know what amount is on that. Pastor Scott won't know. I won't know. Nobody else will know uh, if you've contributed and to what extent. Uh, so bring your sealed commitment card in its envelope back on November 14th. We're going to celebrate God's goodness as we turn in our commitment cards all together. Now, each family will be asked to make, to consider making a three-year financial commitment. Your decision to participate and to what extent to participate is between you and the Lord. How you fill out your commitment card is up to you, and how you fulfill that commitment is, is up to you as well. You can do that monthly, you can do that quarterly, you can do it yearly, you can make one lump sum contribution. It can be cash, it can be check, it can be stocks, bonds. I'm taking it no goat skins. No goat skins, okay, no goat skins. All right, please begin praying now as Pastor Scott uh, has already asked us. Ask the Lord to lead you in your decision uh, as to your commitment to the campaign and seek his guidance before you decide in your mind on an amount. Now, there's more information to come. From now, between now and November 14th, there's gonna be information during the Sunday services, during small group meetings, during our, there's a campaign brochure, there's gonna be uh, email blasts, newsletters, all that in an attempt to answer questions that you may have. Uh, obviously, I can't answer them all right this minute. But as we go through the campaign, please feel free to ask questions of the pastors or uh, the other elders. Today at DBC, we enjoy the benefits of what others before us have sacrificed to accomplish. 
In the history of DBC, as ministry opportunities presented themselves, there were discussions, there was planning, there was prayer, and there was sacrifice. Each one was a pivotal moment, a chance to demonstrate their faith in a tangible way. When this land that we are work, that we're standing in, sitting in today at 45 Bell Avenue was purchased and the first structure, what we call the commons, was built, that was a pivotal moment. In 1973, when Delaware Christian School was started, that was a pivotal moment. When the 100 building, the 200 building, the 300 building were built, those were pivotal moments too. And some of you were here to experience some of those pivotal moments. Now, 20 years since the last major building project, I believe we are again at a pivotal moment. Each of us has the opportunity to invest in this ministry in a way that will be used by God during our lifetime, for sure. We'll get to enjoy some of the benefits, but more importantly, he will continue to use it for future generations. As with past pivotal moments, this project will require prayer and sacrifice. Let's take care of the beginning, at least, of that prayer portion right now. Join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here today, to hear the truth of your word proclaimed in song, and to hear your word preached. Thank you that we are joined together as brothers and sisters because of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have entrusted us with wealth far beyond our needs. We ask for wisdom to know how you would have us invest your money to further your kingdom and to bring you honor and praise. It's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. And all of God's children said, amen. You are dismissed.